the question I want to open up with is what makes Christians so confident that God will finish what he started in redemption? We sang it today and, and sense it today. It's a, it's a source of the joy that we have in our uh, worship today is that God will complete what, what he began. And so we, we rejoice in that. It, it, is a, it, is a part of, it is a part of the confidence that we have as Christians. We quote passages like 2 Timothy 1.12 that says that we are convinced that God is able to keep what he has entrusted to us until the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 is another one. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We are convinced, as, as stated in, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. We can, we can, say, we can say things like, when we all get to heaven, not if we all get to heaven, right? Because... Because we have, such, we have such a confidence. What, what gives us such confidence? And, and, and we know that faith plays a role in that, right? That the Lord has worked faith in, into our hearts by His Spirit. And we know that, that faith plays a role in that confidence that we have that God will complete what He started But it is not a blind faith. It's not just grasping at thin air. It's not a faith that is not based on any evidence. Rather, we have evidence that God will bring us home, that God will complete what He uh, started. And we can confidently declare that God will bring us all the way home because He has redeemed us and brought us safe thus far. And you recognize that. I use that uh, that phrase safe thus far uh, on purpose because I was thinking as I prepared this sermon of the lyrics of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, that, that part of it that says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Right? So, so we look back and realize that God has delivered us and brought us safe thus far. And that's what gives us the confidence that he will bring us all the way home. And I believe that that speaks to or says something to the central message of what I understand uh, uh, the central message of Psalm 68 to be. I see Psalm 68 as a, as a worshipful declaration. The psalmist is worshipfully declaring that since God has delivered his people, has brought them home or established them in their own land and kept them safe thus far, that they can trust that God will keep them continually and that he will fulfill his promise to them. To help us see that, I, I just want to break it down as we often, as we often do into thirds. Just to just to give us some uh, some portion control here, the where we can uh, work through this. But uh, I, so the three parts then is that the psalmist declares in verse one through six that God will scatter his enemies. So there's that declaration, that worshipful declaration. Second, we see the ground of that declaration. The psalmist grounds the declaration in the fact that God has delivered them. That's verses 7 through 14. That he has brought them home or established them in the land. That's verse 15 through 18. And that he is keeping them safe. Verse 19 through 27. Finally, because God has delivered them, established them, and kept them safe, they can trust that he will keep. His promise. So let's look at verses 1 through 6 together then and see this declaration, this worshipful declaration. God shall scatter His enemies. God shall arise. 
His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless. This is God and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So this, this psalm opens actually with a worshipful declaration that God will scatter his enemies. And what's happening here is actually God, uh, David is borrowing from a prayer of Moses, and that prayer is found in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, and I'll, I'll read that uh, for you. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And I'll read verse 36 because, it, uh, because that is, I believe, picked up a little later in the psalm. And when it rested, when the ark of the covenant rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So that is David borrowing from this prayer. Psalm 68, 1 borrows from this prayer of Moses. And Moses prayed it each time the Ark of the Covenant set out from the Israelite camp in their uh, journey through the wilderness. And we don't have the superscription uh, that we have had in some of the other Psalms that tell us the exact context. But the fact that David uh, rehearses or echoes this prayer of Moses may give us a hint that the context of this Psalm, that this Psalm was written uh, when the Ark of the Covenant made its way into Jerusalem or to Mount Zion. We don't know that for sure. I will say that that's definitely what... Uh, David had in mind. He has in mind here the journey of God's people through the wilderness with the Ark of Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant in tow. So David is worshipfully speaking of God's holy character as a father to the fatherless, protector of the vulnerable, a provider for the destitute, and a deliverer of the imprisoned. That's what. That's how he describes the character of God in verse one through six. But he does all of this with the backdrop of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and his presence with them through the wilderness. So he is talking about the holy character of God, but he is using God's uh, keeping of them through the wilderness as an illustration of that holy character. And that's why he speaks in verse 4 of... uh, uh, of the one who rides through the desert. Do you see that? Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. So God has revealed his holy character as he has taken up the cause of his enslaved people, the Israelites, their, uh, as their father, protector, and provider. He took his imprisoned people to a place of prosperity as they they spoiled the Egyptians, but then he left the Egyptians in a land that was parched and made desolate in God's judgment. And that's found in verse 6. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious, the Egyptians, they dwell in a parched land. They, they dwell in a land that has been laid waste by the judgment of God and the plagues that befell them there. And the fact that they have completely lost their military power in the Red Sea. So God's people have been brought to a place of prosperity while the Egyptians dwell in a parched land. And this leads into the next point, And that is that David grounds the declaration that God will scatter his enemies in who God is, in the nature of God, but then in also what God has done for them in the past. That's the grounds of this declaration. He says, God shall arise. His enemies shall flee before them. 
the righteous shall exult. And, and God is a fatherless to the widow. How can you be so confident that that is the case? Well, David says, I'm going to make the ground, I'm going to make an argument for the grounds of that declaration. And he does so in verse 7 through 27. And I'm going to have to break that down even a little further into bite-sized pieces. And we'll look, uh, we'll, we'll look together uh, at those pieces as we move along. So how do they know God will scatter his enemies? He grounds this declaration by rehearsing, really, a brief history of Israel, showing that God has delivered them, brought them home, and is keeping them safe. So verse 7 through 14, David says, God will scatter his enemies, and the reason I know that is because he has delivered his people. Oh, oh God, when you went out before your people... This is verse 7, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one, of, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished, your flock found a dwelling in it, in your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy, the Lord gives the word, the women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. David's waxing quite poetic there, isn't he? When the Almighty scatters there, let fall, let snow fall on Zelman. So the first evidence that David provides for his declaration that God will scatter his enemies is that God has delivered his people. What David hinted at in the declaration in verse uh, 4, he now describes, or maybe I should say verse 6, he first alludes to that exodus in the last part of Psalm 68, 6. The, uh, he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. So he's led uh, the captives to a rich place. But the rebellious, the Egyptians, are dwelling in a parched land. Then David speaks of the march through the wilderness. And talks of God's protection and provision there. And verse 8 uses poetic imagery to describe the revelation of God's holiness at Sinai, or Sinai, I, I, I think I say that wrong. I think I say that the redneck way out of habit. <laughs> Sinai, I think is the right way to say that. But, uh, but, but this is a revelation of God's holiness at Sinai, where the earthquake and a thick cloud filled with thunder and lightning covered the mountain. I think we can, we can see that. For those of you that study the Bible, you get that. It's a momentous occasion in the desert where God and the people of God entered in a, into a covenant together. The, we know that as the Mosaic Covenant. The psalm then begins to speak of God settling the people in the land, which took place in the book of Judges or Joshua and Judges during, the, during those conquests there. God's flock as he calls them in this section, found a place of inheritance in the land. And the women who announced the news that caused the kings to tremble is probably a reference to the time when uh, Egypt's army was drowned in the Red Sea and, and we see Miriam taking up a, a tambourine and begin to sing a song and dance before the Lord. And a lot of the women joined in together and they, they sing a song and celebrated the victory over the Egyptian army. And so, uh, and even that celebration and the fame of that act of God went throughout the land and caused kings of armies to tremble and flee before the people of God. And so that's probably a poetic way to speak of Miriam singing this song, this woman singing this song, and that causing the kings of the armies to flee. Then we come to verses 12 through 14, which are quite imaginative and, and poetic. So it's difficult to know precisely what is being said. 
But the women taking the spoil could be a reference to to Deborah and the tumultuous time in Judges when God worked on behalf of his people despite their unfaithfulness. Even, as a matter of fact, there is similar language used in Psalm 68, all throughout Psalm 68, that is also used in Judges 5. So that might be a good homework assignment for you. Uh, You can go back later on and read Judges 5 and compare it to uh, Psalm 68. And see how, how exactly they may compare in contrast. But we don't really know for sure that that is the case. But there is certainly some, some similar language there. And uh, the women at home dividing the spoil could be a reference to, uh, to Deborah uh, during those tumultuous times. Or it could be saying that gold and silver was scattered like snow everywhere as an illustrative way to talk about the prosperity of the land, so much so that the men could send the women out to spoil the armies while they stayed home and tended the livestock. It could, it could be saying that. It could also be saying something else. It's very poetic here. But whatever the case, okay, what is clear is that, that it is a reference to the way God was delivering them from the inhabitants of the land in the books of Joshua and Judges. So what you have here is you have the Ark of the Covenant moving from uh, Sinai, or Sinai, goodness, into, uh, into the, the land in the conquest of Joshua and it's in the settlement of the land in Judges. Then you see verse 15 through 18 show that God establishes His people in the land. Or I'm saying that God brought them home. So 15 through 18. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount God desired for His abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So again, this is the grounds of the declaration. David not only says that God has delivered his people from the Egyptians, he has marched them through the wilderness and has placed them in the promised land. He has also made that land their home. God has established them in the land He promised to Abraham. He has brought His people home. And again, David, as he does all throughout this psalm, uses imaginative imagery here. And in this illustration, he's primarily using the illustration of mountains. He calls on the mountains of Bashan. To give a testimony as to why they are envious of Jerusalem. And so the mountains of Bashan were located on the other side of the Jordan. Kind of to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And so they would have been lofty heights. Probably higher than Mount Zion where Jerusalem dwelled. And so the imaginative imagery, if you're looking at a map, could be that these mountains are looking down to down south, down across the river to the smaller peaked mountains of, uh, of Jerusalem. So it may have been a superior mountain range than that, of, uh, than that that the range Jerusalem set upon, but God had determined not to dwell in Bashan, but in Jerusalem. And David also seems to compare Sinai with Jerusalem with an, with an allusion back to Numbers 10.35. Did y'all pick that up? In Numbers 10.35, there are 10,000 thousands of Israelites. That's what it says in uh, Numbers 10.35. But, but now, merely the chariots of Jerusalem are twice that number. Because God now dwells in Jerusalem. So the people were ten thousand thousands. And now David's saying the chariots, merely the chariots of Jerusalem, are twice ten thousands of thousands. But the reason isn't 
He's again using imagery here. The reason isn't because they have such a massive army, although the army is certainly built up under David's rule. The reason is because God dwelt in Jerusalem. This, this is the, the reason why he can say that. God now dwells in Jerusalem. And David describes that reality in a powerful way when he uses the phrase, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So remember where we are now. The imagery David began with is hearkening back to Numbers 10.35. And he's showing the Ark of the Covenant, which is the physical symbol of the presence of God making its way through the wilderness. He begins the psalm the way David, or rather, the way Moses began the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. So you're seeing that? So when Moses, when the Ark of the Covenant was picked up, Moses prayed the prayer, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. And that's the way David begins this psalm, God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered. And so he is using the movement of the Ark of the Covenant as his illustration here. So that's the imagery, the physical symbol of the presence of God making its way through the wilderness and then making its way into the promised land and then resting now in Jerusalem. So we can say that the presence of God has moved with the people of God from Mount Sinai or Sinai to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, while other lofty mountains look on in resentment and envy. The Lord has established his himself rather with his people on Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Everything that Sinai represented, and even what is encapsulated in the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant. I don't want to get too symbolic here, but in the Ark of the Covenant, you have the, the, what, the budding rod of Aaron, the tablets of stone, and the pot of manna, which, which uh, has all sorts of representation. You have the, the law of God, and then you have the provision of God, and you have the government of God that's established in the wilderness as the Ark of the Covenant makes its trek through the wilderness into the promised land. And now David is saying it is set down in Zion. God is with us, and He has established His people on Mount Zion. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. And there's something, there's something that is uh, eschatological, something that looks into the future about that. And I'll touch that uh, more in a moment. But there's also something interesting that happens in verse 18. And again, this is probably, if you, if you read Judges 5, you may, uh, you may notice this, but it probably uh, David borrowing language from Deborah's song in Judges 5.12, perhaps even giving us a hint about some of the cryptic language of verses 12 through 14 being a reference uh, to the time of Deborah. But he says that God ascended and led a host of captives receiving gifts among men. That's verse 18. So what David is saying in essence is that God has triumphed over his enemies, but but not only has he triumphed over them, but he has led them captive, and then he has given gifts or dispersed the gifts to the people. So, so this is what's happening. This is the picture here. God triumphed over his enemies, but not only that, he also spoiled them. But not only that, he is using the spoils to establish his people. That's, that's the way God did it. This happened with the Egyptians, right? So when the people of God departed Egypt in the Exodus... The Bible tells us that they spoiled those people. They took, they plundered the treasures of Egypt. And then when it came time to build the tabernacle, 
And all of the, everything was laid out and they said, okay, we need to take up an offering so that the tabernacle can be built. The people brought the spoils that they had plundered from Egypt to build the tabernacle. And it was so much, imagine this, right? Every preacher's dream that they brought so much stuff that Moses was like, all right, tell them to quit. It's too much. Right? So, so, God, so God plunders the, Egypt, the Egyptian treasures and then uses those spoils and those treasures to establish his presence with his people in the, in the tabernacle. It also happened with the people uh, of the land in the book of Joshua. God gave the Israelites, he told them, vineyards that they did not plant. So they were doing their wickedness, but also while they were doing their wickedness, they were building houses, they were planting gardens. And so what God did, does when they enter into the land is he just drives those people out and the Israelites just come in right behind them and pick up where they left off. He uses their spoils to establish his people. So he conquers his enemies, he gathers up their spoils, and then he gives those gifts to his people to establish them and again if you're not if you're not yet convinced that's what david did when he conquered his enemies he laid aside the spoils of his enemies and it is with the the treasures of david's conquered enemies that solomon builds the temple so we see that so we see god he conquers his enemies and then establishes people with the spoils. God has brought his people home and established them in the land. And he has established his presence with them. Then verses 19 through 27, David grounds his declaration that God shall arise and scatter his enemies in the fact that God is keeping his people safe. Verse 19 through 27. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies. The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. That you may strike your feet in their blood. That the tongues of your dogs may... Have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between the virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the sanctuary. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. So God is keeping them safe. He's not only established his people, he is keeping them. David moves from what God has done in the past as the Ark of the Covenant has trekked through the wilderness and has uh, uh, been established in the land. And, And he moves from there to what God is doing presently. Verse 19 and 20 state that God is their salvation. And God is daily bearing them up. So not only is His presence with them, but God is working on their behalf even at the moment. And also they are confident that God will strike their enemies and bring them from where they are, even from where they have been stricken, so that the people may share in God's triumph over the enemies, that they may trample them down. And this is just humiliating them, even seen as the judgment of God. So let's say that God drowns them in the sea. He's saying, I'm going to bring them up out of the sea and throw them at you. And this is pretty graphic. I get it. But it's the Bible. He's bringing them up out of the sea, casting them at the feet of the Israelites so that the dogs can tear at their flesh. I mean, pretty hardcore, right? And and so God's God's not playing around here. But God is humiliating his enemies. He's, his curse is upon them. He is keeping his people safe. And David then envisions a, a, joy, a joyful procession. As God leads his people into the sanctuary as they rejoice in him. Because listen, 
The people of God were, are, were not merely a military nation. They were a worshiping community. And so all of this military dominance is not for the sake of military dominance. It's so that they can worship their gods. You remember even when Moses goes before Pharaoh, he says, let them go so that they can go worship God. So they are a dominant military community, but the reason that they are that is because they are a worshiping community. Their enemies are scattered so that they can worship. And so God has humiliated their enemies. And then the procession is made. A joyful procession as God leads his people into the sanctuary. And it's even consistent with that Ark of the Covenant motif that we have seen throughout the psalm. As the physical symbol of God's presence makes its way through history into Jerusalem. The sanctuary of the people of God and could speak to the fact that David is immediately reflecting on the movement of the Ark of the Covenant that he has just witnessed, seeing the tribes rejoicing as they go before the Ark of the Covenant. Or the Ark of the Covenant goes before them. But David and the people know that they can trust God, will keep them safe, because he has delivered them, established them in the Promised Land, and now dwells in Jerusalem. But they also believe that God will keep His promise. God will keep His promise. In verse 28 through 35, Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples trample underfoot those who lust after tribute, scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt, Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. <clears throat> o kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel. And whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Note the confidence with which that prayer is made in verse 28. Summon your power, O God. The power, O God, listen, by which you have worked for us. We know you've got the power because we've seen you do it before. And that's... How do we know God will keep His promise? The psalmist bases his petition for God's powerful working on God's powerful working in the past. David is certain God is powerful and will fulfill His promises because God has worked for them. Work God by your power the way you have worked by your power. The way, David got, the way David expects God to work is, is to bring about peace then for all the kingdoms of the earth to worship God. And that's, and that's what you see. Kingdoms of the earth sing to God, sing praises to Him. And verse 30 is likely poetic imagery likening the hostile nations to beasts that would hide in the reeds and attack their prey. Or bulls who would seek to trample down God's people. Perhaps through tax or tribute or something like that. And the prayer is that they would be trampled down. But not just for the sake of being trampled. It is so the nations who delight in war would be driven away. And that there would be peace. So this is not a trampling down for the sake of trampling down or triumph. It is, it is a trampling down for the sake of peace. David believes that because God has established His presence among His people in Zion, and that He will bring about peace in that place, that as a result, the nations will stream to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. Even note uh, verse 33, which says, God rides in the heaven. The God who rode through the deserts, as he established a people who would worship him, 
Where does it say that? God rode through the deserts with that. Yes, verse 4, lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. So the God who rode through the deserts, as he established his people, who would worship him, has come all the way to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he will ride in the ancient heavens and rule over all the kings of the earth. (laughs) God's power is over all Israel, but also over all the heavens. And he is the one who strengthens his people. And so it's no wonder the psalm ends with exclamation, Blessed be God. Now, anytime we study the Old Testament, we don't only want to see it as a message that is isolated to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant people of God. We, we want to interpret how it points to Christ and what it means for us as the New Covenant people of God, right? And that task is not always a simple one, but one of the things that helps with that task is when we have a quotation of an Old Testament passage... In the New Testament. And we, we have that. Thanks be to God. We have that in our passage today. And you may already know this. You may have heard it. For those of you that study your Bible. You may know that verse 18. Psalm 68, 18. Is quoted in Ephesians 4, 8. And I'll read 8 through 10. Therefore it says. And that's a reference to. It is a reference to Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Listen to how Paul interprets that. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens. He's now riding in the heavens that he might feel all things. And then if you, you may say, and he gave, and he gave, he gave gifts to men. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I'm reading on. But, but Paul understands this passage to ultimately refer to Christ descending to the grave in death and then ascending in resurrection. So where does God triumph over his enemies? And ascend on high. He does so in his death. In the death of Jesus. And then ascending in resurrection. Triumphing over the enemy. In so doing Jesus led a host of captives. And gave gifts to men. So in Psalm 68 God triumphs over his enemies. And uses those spoils to establish his people in Jerusalem and to dwell with them there. In Ephesians 4, Jesus' death and resurrection purchases, purchases redemption for all who believe on him. And it is through those people, those people that believe on Jesus, who are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, his own special dwelling place, That God will establish his kingdom and will dwell with his people forever. Do you see that? In fact, the the context of the quotation of Psalm 68, 18 in Ephesians 4 relates to Jesus bringing about a kingdom of peace through the unity of the church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. You can just look back a couple of verses that I I don't have time to do. So how will Jesus conquer the nations and rule and reign in peace? It is by giving the gifts to the church that would establish her and bring her to maturity. That's part of what I read to you to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the peace or the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So Christ has... Conquered his enemies in death. He has ascended on high in resurrection. And he has dispersed the spoils of the enemy and given gifts to the church so that he can establish his special dwelling place, not in Jerusalem, but in the church. God's people. This kind of thing excites me. Just as Isaiah prophesied, this is... 
And, and this, what I'm wanting you to see is that this is a biblical theology that is not just isolated to a, a section here or a section there. This is something that is prophesied and spoken of all throughout the Word of God. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, the prophecy is, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that's, that's us, we're in the latter days, that the mountain of the house, and have been since the outpouring of Pentecost, That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Do you hear that? Do you hear the echo of Psalm 68? As Bashan looks on in envy. Shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. There's the all of the kingdoms of the earth praising the Lord. And many people shall come and say. Come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. That he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion. Out of the special dwelling place of God. Shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's us. That is the gifts that God has given. He has given the gifts. He has rather ascended on high and given us the gifts to establish us as the new covenant Jerusalem. We are the special dwelling place of God from whence the word of God goes forth. But then listen to the result. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And what happens? They shall beat their swords into plowshares because there's not a need for swords anymore. And their spears into pruning uh, pruning hooks. (laughs) Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The word of God shall go forth from Zion and it will bring about peace. (sighs) Beloved, it is the proclamation of the gospel of the resurrected and reigning Jesus. It is through that proclamation that the church will be established and through which peace will come. There will be peace. There will be peace. I want you to notice one more thing where Paul's quotation of Psalm 68 is in his argument in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul has just rehearsed what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Similarly to the way David rehearsed what God had accomplished for them by His special dwelling place, His throne, the Ark of the Covenant, as it made its trek through the wilderness. Paul rehearses what God has accomplished for us in Christ. He is transitioning to speaking about what it will look like then for the new people of God to live in the kingdom of God. And here's where it touches us. So then what gives us the confidence that we can live out this new life? That we can walk in the newness of life? That we can live a life filled with the Holy Spirit in every aspect of our lives? On our jobs, in our homes, with our husbands and wives, with our children? Ephesians uh, 5 and 6. It is the what gives us confidence that we can say, I know that God will help us live out the new covenant. Live out uh, kingdom lives. What gives us the confidence that Christ will bring to completion the new life He has given us? Well, what gives us the confidence that Christ will do it in Ephesians chapter one through uh, what Christ, what Christ will do in Ephesians chapter four through six is what He has done in Ephesians one through three. It is the fact that He has given us new life. How do I know that I can live out the new life? It's because Christ has given us new life. How do I know that God will bring to completion the work that He has began in me? It's because He started the work that He began in you. That's how you know He'll bring it to completion. It is the fact that He has done it. 
we know that God will bring us home, keep us safe, and keep His promises because He has already done it for us in Christ. (sighs) Just breathe a sigh of relief. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I am hastening, I or making an attempt to at least. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is 1 John 3, 2 through 3. So favorite, in fact, that I'm having a difficult time turning to it. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Uh Uh-oh. But we know... That when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes thus purifies himself even as He is pure. Beloved, we can have hope that God will fulfill His promise to us because He has delivered us, established us, And kept us safe thus far. I know we live in unsettling times. I could even even sense as I studied this. A resistance to this. Because it just doesn't feel like the promises of God. Are moving toward completion. Easier and easier I think. In our context to look around and become anxious. And begin to wonder. Can we stand what may lie ahead? Because I'm looking out out into the future and I'm I'm thinking, man, things are chaotic. But I'm also looking out into the future and saying that if the past tells us anything about what is happening nowadays, it may be fixing to get tight for us Christian folks who by and large, compared to a lot of other Christian folks, are kind of weak. We haven't withstood The amount of persecution that generations past have. And I mean, I'm talking about me. I'm not saying that as an indictment. I'm saying it causes me to be afraid. It looks like like things might get difficult. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the way that I struggle now. With air-conditioned housing and automobiles and all sorts of... in a pantry full of groceries. And I'm thinking, man, if I can't run with the footman, what am I going to do when the chariots get here? Does that... Con- I mean, it, it's a concern for me. It looks like the things may be going the opposite direction of what God has promised In the world and even in our lives. But can I say dear ones. God will arise. He will scatter his enemies. He will rule in righteousness forever and ever. And we can know that beyond a doubt. Because as we face the future. Because of what God has done for us in the past. We can say with confidence, He will keep me safe. He will keep me through. Because listen, it it has not been me that has kept myself now. And it will not be me that keeps myself then. I I can't look to my, my past experiences. I have to look at God who was delivered and established and kept safe. And know that if He has kept me safe thus far... It may get rough in the years ahead, but He will keep me safe then. Be not dismayed. We have every evidence that God will keep His promises and will keep us to the end. And I I know that I'm late, but I cannot, I cannot end here without saying something to the unbeliever. Because unbelieving friend, I cannot offer you the hope that I am offering the church of the living God today. Your sin places you outside of the new covenant. It places you outside of the people of God. Your unbelief. And the only way 
that you may be a part of the people of God is through Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of the new covenant. The only way that you can be a part of the new covenant people of God is through Jesus Christ. Your good works cannot save you. Your connections to the local church cannot save you. Attending small group cannot save you. You Listen, you have more than a behavior problem. You have more than a communication problem. You have more than a community or connection problem. The fact is, unbelieving friend, you have a sin problem that you inherited from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The only remedy for that inherited sin came in the person of Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God against sin in Himself. No one else did that. No one else could do that. And then to show that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God raised Jesus from the dead. That is, that is Him going in, descending into the heart of the earth and then ascending. And He now rules and reigns in the heavens. And here's, here's some startling news that He promised He would return at the end of the age and He would make all things new. But, but here's the thing, unbeliever. The hope is that He will all, make all things new. But the, but the terror is He will destroy all those who refuse to believe on Him. Unbeliever, that's you. That's you. Trusting in your works. Hoping in your own goodness. Outside of the covenant of God, you will not be able to withstand the terror of the Lord. And I don't say that judgmentally. I say that as lovingly and as fearfully and as reverently as I possibly can. Pleading with you. You are not a part of the kingdom of God. So for God to fulfill His promise is bad news for you. It's great news for those who believe, but it's terrible news for those who don't. Therefore, my closing call, my closing plea, unbeliever, is for you to repent of your sin and believe the gospel that I'm declaring to you at this moment. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise you He will deliver you. He will not cast aside any who come to Him. He will deliver you. He will establish you in the kingdom of God. And He will give you the same hope that the people of God have here today. That I have tried to encourage the people of God here today. You can can leave this building having been discouraged by the news that I have preached. But in a moment of time be encouraged by the news because of the faith that the Spirit of God and the hope that the Spirit of God works in you today. You have to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Let me say this. If that is you and you're interested in that. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know hardly anyone in this church that wouldn't be interested in helping you there. We want to help you there. I'm, I'm interested. And I would say there's a host of people that are interested in showing you what it means to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Find one of us. But whatever you do, I am pleading with you, do not walk out that door today until you make things square with God. Saints of God, let's pray.